are there basic ethical values that all human beings, regardless of their religion or culture, can be held to or should be affirming or would affirm? From Religion News Service, this is Beliefs. I'm Bill Baker. You might not believe it, but, you know, I'm not surprised that you can have these ethics because you're a child of God just like me or my Muslim friend or my Hindu friend, that I'm seeing it through my religious lens, but the fact of humanity being an impetus for ethics fits very well with most religious traditions. Asking how ethics occur naturally or emerge through faith takes us to speak to Professor Christine Fearer Hinsey. Hinsey is a professor of Christian ethics at Fordham University and the director of the Francis and Ann Curran Center for American Catholic Studies. Christine, you run a center on partly on ethics and values, uh, as it, I assume, interfaces with religion. How are religion and ethics different, and how are they the same? Well, ethics is something that any human being can think about or talk about. Um, one could argue that everyone has some form of ethics. Not everyone has religion. Uh, however, uh, the, the story of ethics uh, in Western civilization, let's just say, is deeply intertwined with religion insofar as most communities until the modern period have been steeped in religious traditions, which have then been the carriers of the ethics or the morals or the values or the primary carriers in most communities. So they've had a long historical uh, interrelationship that um, continues to this day. But at the same time, even in the past, um, there was a recognition that ethics transcends religion. It's more of a human thing than simply a religious thing. However, if you put ethics into the context of religion, it creates a sort of sacral kind of context and warrant and justification for what your ethics might be, for, for good and for bad sometimes. Can you have a society that doesn't have ethics? Well, from where I sit, having studied this for a number of decades, um, and just from life experience, I think the answer to that is no. Um, one of the things that makes up a society is, uh, to put it more broadly, an ethos of some sort. In other words, a set of practices, a set of values that we agree on, at least implicitly, that allows us to live together. And so by its very nature, then, society requires some kind of ethics. Now, let's say it's a corrupt or a horrible society. Even that has a set of uh, values and a certain kind of ethos. Uh, we might say that's bad ethics, right? But nonetheless, this idea that there is a set of norms that people uh, consensually follow or recognize as having weight. Um, uh, one, I think sociologists would agree with this as well. One can't have a society without that. Is there a single ethical standard, one that everyone stands up and salutes and says, these are the values that we live by. That is a question that people have asked for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And we can think of Aristotle, we can think of Plato. Um, in, the, in the Catholic tradition where I tend to work, in the Christian tradition, uh, Thomas Aquinas um, in, uh, in the 13th century uh, famously synthesized a Christian view and an uh, Aristotelian view on this matter. And one of the things that's significant about that is he at the time and people for many centuries have tried to ask, uh, again, to what extent as human beings 
are there basic ethical values that all human beings, regardless of the religion or culture, will be uh, can be held to or, or should be affirming or would affirm? And Thomas, um, again, drawing on Aristotle, talked about this term natural law, which is a little misleading as a, as a label in the sense that it's not a bunch of laws, but what it really means is, are there inbuilt tendencies or dispositions toward values in human beings? Today in sociobiology, people ask the same thing in terms of evolution, but he's using philosophy. And Thomas talks about three basic, if you will, tendencies toward values that he thinks every human being has. And they're kind of at three levels. At the most basic level, he talks about um, we all want to, we have a, put a value on preserving life, on staying alive, our own self-preservation and the preservation of, of human beings in general, that this is sort of built in, that life matters and we try to preserve it when we can. He thought this held for all of, of, of reality, so he even said, well, you know, even rocks try to stay alive, which is kind of a funny way to put it, but that everything tends to try to stay in existence. So every, few could disagree on this, he thought. So preserve life. The second one builds on that one is that human beings have uh, have values around um, uh, re- reproducing offspring and caring for the young. Um, and again, he thought we shared this with the, nat- with the animal world. Uh, and then thirdly, that human beings, no matter where they live or, ho- or what culture or time, have a desire to seek the truth and to live in society. So those he thought were sort of human basics that every human being shared, and therefore as well, those he thought were the basis for some basic ethics which he called natural law, um, that everyone, whether they again use that term or not, would be would would recognize and would and would and, and, and are beholden to to a certain extent. Um, so in the Christian discussion, for example, um, people have pointed to the second table of the Ten Commandments, meaning in the Ten Commandments there are the first three are about like putting no God before you and honoring the Sabbath and so forth. But the last segment of the Ten Commandments are things like honor your father and mother, don't kill, don't steal, uh, don't try to take your your neighbor's partner, uh, don't covet. And many theologians would say, well, those are kind of a rendition of things that most people in most societies would recognize as basic values. So that's one answer. Are ethics different in different cultures, different societies? That's a great question, because the the one side is, are there there universal things, you know? And on the other side is, how different can they be? Um, And again, even back in the 13th century, you know, Thomas and others recognized that these can get enfleshed in different ways. So if I say, don't kill is kind of a general general precept, um, that can look very different in different contexts. So perhaps in my tribe or community, um, I want to only say don't kill applies to my people, not necessarily to your people, right? Um, Or perhaps um, um, do not commit adultery in some cultures might mean, well, you should have Make, make this person your wife. If you have five wives, five husbands, okay, but don't commit adultery. So even if you accept these basic things, they're going to look different in different cultures. Individuals' ethics are always ensconced and informed by communities and cultures, and that's going to put a stamp on the way we understand what's right and wrong and the way we prioritize what's right and wrong and the way we live what's right and wrong, right? So therefore, 
ethics can be very different uh, depending on the culture, time, and place. And there's a million examples, right? 200, 300 years ago, slavery was accepted in this country. Um, maybe people didn't like it, but they felt like you know there was justification for it. Um, right now, um, it's acceptable for us to drive around in fossil burning you know uh, vehicles. And I often wonder, you know, a hundred years from now, people will look back and say, these people were smart. They knew about global warming. What were they thinking, right? So, so as we learn more and we evolve, um, ethics looks different, not just in culture, but in different times. How important are ethical role models in society? I think about it being a media person, and uh, especially a media person that works with uh, religion news service. And you think about in the broad media of America, in the broad society of America, having role models that represent uh, the ethics of our society uh, are likely important. But one, who would they be? How important is that? And, uh, and where do you find these people? Depending on how you focus your understanding of ethics, role models become more or less important. So, for example, if your ethics focuses like Immanuel Kant's did on on basic deontological principles, you know, it's about the principles, then the impetus can more be on, or the focus can more be on, you know, these are the principles I must follow. It doesn't matter if anybody else is following them. I must do what's right. Uh, if you focus on uh, ends and desires and telloi, you know, where am I heading in this world? Again, um, that can be your community. That can be you personally. But if you focus on for example, um, character, you know, I need to be a certain kind of person. And that's sometimes called virtue or character ethics. Then role models become really, really important. Um, In religious traditions, those are often discipleship models, right? I want to be like Jesus. I want to emulate the Buddha um, and so forth. And so I would argue even in any of these models, uh, role models make a difference. I want to see someone else who follows these traditions, right? Or I want to see someone else who lives up to their their principles. And that inspires us because we're such social beings. We're so social. And we're imitative beings. We're emulative beings, right? We do imitate the people around us. So the short answer to your question is role models are incredibly important. And we're shaped by the people who are our role models, right? Our parents, you know, teachers, uh, and so forth. For Again, for better or worse. What about the big famous role models? In a way, I thought that that's what you're asking. You know, the people that everyone knows. Clearly, they're important, Always they have clay feet. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, uh, now most recently Jean Vanier, you know, for many people. And so the role model on one hand is very important, but as human beings, uh, role models are always going to have clay feet and they will disappoint us to some extent. And so to me that's a cautionary note that or your parents, you know, your dad, your mom, you know, the person, your teacher, whomever you really admire. Um, It's important not to put all your ethical eggs in the basket of, I'm going to follow this role model, because any human being is going to fail, and any role model is going to break your heart on some level. Um, Similarly with institutions, that's not exactly a role model, but, you know, some of us 
look at our church or our uh, uh, our religious community or even our country as sort of holding certain values that inspire us. And those are inevitably uh, disappointing on some levels. So on the one hand, yes, they're really important. On the other hand, perhaps the journey toward moral maturity involves becoming more realistic about the fact that uh, role models are significant, but we cannot look to them in all ways and at all times to uh, live up to what it is we hope to be inspired by. One of the things that has always interested me, uh, and I've never fully understood it, uh, like I don't understand many things, uh, is uh, I'd always thought that in order to be truly ethical, people that are really ethical all believe in God and an afterlife. That's one of the reasons I thought that they were ethical. But in my life experience, I've known many atheists, some on this podcast, mm-hmm. who are every bit as ethical as the most ethical, God-fearing person. How do you explain that one? Well, it, it gets into the motivations for being ethical, right? right? And like you, I've grown up in a religious context, and probably as a kid, the afterlife, uh, and even as a young person, the afterlife was um, used and accommodated by me as a reason not to do bad, you know, because I was going to be held accountable by some higher power. And you and I are probably similar in age. So we remember being taught, you know, um, um, if I commit these sins and they aren't forgiven, I'm in danger of going to hell or, you know, not getting into heaven. So that's a pretty powerful motivator on a gut level if you take it seriously. And therefore, I agree with you. It's it's a tendency of mine, it has been, to say, if you don't believe in God, like it's like Nietzsche. If there is no God, anything's possible, right? Why would you care about if, you, if there is no God? And also, like you, I completely agree. I've been shamed and blown away by the ethical uh, virtuosity of people that I know who I believe, I would call them humanists, you know, people who who love the human race, who love their fellow human beings, um, purely on the basis of the fact that we're all in this together. And uh, from the point of view of a religious viewpoint, there are ways to explain that. In other words, if we believe we're all children of God, if we believe we're all made in the image of God, even if my atheist friend doesn't believe that, as a Christian or a believer, I can say, well, you might not believe it, but you know, I'm not surprised that you can have these ethics because you're a child of God just like me or my Muslim friend or my, you know, um, my, my Hindu friend, that I'm seeing it through my religious lens, but the fact of humanity being an impetus for ethics fits very well with most religious traditions. Are ethics part of, you often hear it today, and one of my arguments is today some of the most ethical organizations in the in America are the companies, the corporations, not the things that you'd look toward ethics for, uh, like uh, religion (laughs) or government. Where does that come from and why is that, do you think? Well, we'd have to have another conversation about which companies we're talking about. (laughs) However, again, within any organization, and this is one of your fields of expertise, organizational behavior, um, there is always the question of ethos, there's always the question of norms, there's always a question of accountability, integrity, and so forth. So it's certainly potentially the case that any organization, including a business organization, could be a model of ethics or its opposite. 
we are in a very legalistic culture, a law-oriented culture, and one of the things I think is a danger there is that any organization um, may be tempted to figure out how to comply with the law in a way that benefits their self-interest and not necessarily uh, operates at the highest ethical standards. In other words, I'm complying with the law, and so I can offer these um, uh, inflated mortgage rates to poor families because the law allows it, even though ethically it may be questionable that I'm putting these people into a position that will then put them into jeopardy of bankruptcy and so forth. But it's okay because I'm following the law, right? So I sometimes think, particularly in the business world where profit is obviously a motive, there's a strong uh, temptation to say, well, what are the rules? How do we how do we sort of interpret or jigger the rules around so that we can get the most profit without necessarily thinking always of the ethics? So that would be one of my one of my concerns. Um, but we see the same kind of temptation in religious organizations, right? We're looking at the wake of a terrible um, uh, abuse crisis, not just in religion, but there you had, well, we have certain rules among our clerics about protecting our own. You know, we we want to make sure that um, the church isn't scandalous to the larger community. Therefore, let's keep these issues in-house. Is there something illegal about that? Maybe not, but it was that really the best ethical approach, even with good intentions? So, so I wouldn't necessarily prioritize business as the most ethical. I think every organization, politics, you could use talk talk about the same things, right? Every organization has the potential to be strongly ethical or not ethical at all, or um, you know, pseudo ethical. <laughs> following the rules. We look really good, but we're really kind of shady here, right? And that's a struggle I think any institution has to deal with. I've never taken an ethics course and uh, or a theology course, for that matter. I wonder why anybody does take such a course. Uh, and are young people interested in, in this subject, or is this something that is fading away? Well, you're sitting in a Jesuit Catholic university, and so um, the benefit we have is this long liberal arts tradition, which which includes a core set of courses that has always included philosophy, uh, including ethics and theology. And so um, our when if you were to ask our students why they take these classes, the first answer would be, they make us. <laughs> um, but having taught ethics and religion at such universities for several decades, I can attest to the fact that the reluctant student um, comes into a class like this, and very often, most times I would say, by the end of a course in ethics, philosophical ethics, or, or religion and theology, uh, will say, I didn't think I would get anything out of this, and I've gotten a lot out of it. Because I believe these are spaces where we and the students can look at some of the bigger, deeper um, questions that nonetheless impinge on our daily lives. How, I'm going, how am I going to live my sexual life, for example? You know, how am I going to um, be a person in business who wants to make money but also cares about values? Um, how is it that, um, or on the religion side, why is there so much suffering in the world and can we even believe in a divine? You know? And these are not questions that only experts ask, you know, anybody who's lost a family member, you know, who's had a suicide in their family or so forth, you know, ask these questions. And so to be able to open up for students that, oh, these are spaces where 
yes, big complicated theories can be talked about, but the the generation of both of these, religion and ethics, comes out of the pathos, the reality, the struggles of everyday life that everybody cares about. And that then can create a fascinating space, both for really theoretical and um, uh, traditional kinds of reading and discussion, but also continually going back to everyday life, right? Just talking about coronavirus right now, you know, in the classroom. So it's a wonderful opportunity for students, and they and I as a teacher often bemoan the fact that more people don't have the opportunity because it's such a rich opportunity. Where do you have a chance to converse about this stuff? One last question, Christine, and that is, what happens when respected figures... Uh, or respected entities do have uh, feet of clay. W- what happens to ethics in the society in general at that time? Well, it's a pertinent question to our day and age, right? Um, both in terms of individuals, as we were discussing earlier. In terms, I would say, the the whole institution of politics, especially national politics. You know, we talk about the president's low ratings, but Congress has dismal, people have dismal opinions of Congress. Um, And um, I I vividly remember on this point, um, my children were in middle school when Bill Clinton was president and the whole Monica Lewinsky thing came up. And we took a bus trip to Washington, D.C. And these kids were in seventh and eighth grade. And I remember the first time I saw the White House and how how inspiring it was. And we drove by the White House, and these kids were snickering about Monica Lewinsky. And my heart just kind of broke, you know. I thought, these kids are growing up with this really sad view of what our American institutions are because of the misbehavior of certain people. But it mars our sense of the institution when these individuals let us down, right? And we can go on since that since the 90s and give a million other examples. So you're asking what happens. And I think there is an erosion of trust that we are seeing right now in our, in our country in the institutions of politics. Um, you and I maybe have different views on how much we trust the, the businesses and the corporations, but you're right that sometimes they end up looking better than some of these other institutions. And then we, the the ravaging of this of the scandals that have happened in the religious communities, and particularly the Catholic Church, but not just the Catholic Church. So you said, what happens? There's a breach. There's a breakdown, and because. I would argue any society's vitality depends on at least a a minimal basis of trust in a shared set of values. That's very dangerous for the society as a whole. And it's also, I think, very dangerous even on a more micro level for smaller communities, for families, you know, for individuals. In the paper today, there was an article about uh, the the lower life expectancy of the working class and how this is not just older 50s, 60s people who can't get good jobs who are either dying of disease or, or, or addiction or suicide. It's younger people, too. There's a sense of hopelessness that comes up when you feel like, in that case, something's wrong with our economy. I'm not, I don't have the opportunities that I need, and there's not an ethical context in which I feel like I count I'm going to be treated like someone who deserves to have a job to to be able to support my family. Instead, I'm kind of on my own, you know. And that's a breakdown in trust in our socioeconomic, political, cultural system. And then that hurts individuals. Flip side, when things are a mess, 
it's sometimes people on the very ground level that keep it going, right? How we treat each other on the subway, you know, um, the basic civil discourse or the civil way in which people do treat each other every day um, that does keep the tissues of society going, even when we're being very disillusioned. So that means families, individuals, small communities, businesses, and so forth can make a difference in rebuilding that trust or that, that sense of value cohesion, even when there's all this horrible stuff going on in the bigger picture. Actual parishes, actual priests, actual parishioners, they still see the goodness. And so um, that's an important thing to keep in mind as well. Christine Fuhrhinzi, thank you for a fascinating discussion about, of all things, ethics. Thank you very much for speaking with me. Our guest was scholar and ethicist Christine Fuhrhinzi. The conversation continues on our Facebook page, and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, come review us on iTunes. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jay Woodward is our producer with production assistance from Jonathan Smith. The theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker. Thank you for listening.